Chapter Twenty Two of the Last Stroke. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Last Stroke by Lawrence L. Lynch. Chapter Twenty Two, in Number Nine. As the inspector and Ferraz approached the theatre, they were obliged to slacken their pace, for although the performance must have been well on its way, there was a crowd about the entrance. It's a first night for some new stars, now that I think of it, and you'll find a lot of the sporting gentry here whenever a new and pretty face that has had the right kind of advertising is billed. That accounts for our friend's presence here, of course, said the inspector. They made slowly their way toward the entrance, and as they reached it, and were about to pass within the brilliantly lighted vestibule, Inspector Hirsch grabbed his companion's arm and pulled him back within the shadow of a friendly billboard. Shh, he whispered. He is Hobson. He drew Ferrars still further out of the crowd. He must have lost his man or else... Hold on, Ferrars, I'll speak to him. And he glided into the crowd and Ferrars saw him pause by the side of a flashily dressed young fellow who seemed utterly absorbed in trying to revive a smouldering cigar stump. He gave no sign of recognition as the inspector paused beside him and seemed engrossed with his cigar and his own thoughts. But Inspector Hirsch was back in a moment with a grin upon his face. Your man is tired of the vaudeville, he said, and Hobson got close enough behind him. The other chap's still with him too, to hear them planning to go on to the Savoy for a short time. Harry's evidently doing the theatres with his young duffer, as the Swiss calls the fellow, and will probably pluck him if nothing intervenes. He looked hard at Ferraz. My man won't lose sight of him. Want to go on to the Savoy? By all means, replied Ferraz, and they set out noting, as they skirted the crowd, that Hobson was no longer visible. Crossing the street, they hastened their steps, and upon arriving at the Savoy, took up their station near the entrance once more. The crowd here was not dense, and they had not long to wait before two men approached from the direction of the vaudeville, walking slowly, and entered the vestibule of the Savoy. The taller of the two was broad-shouldered, dark and handsome. After a coarse fashion, while the other was smaller with a weak face and uncertain manner. Both were in evening dress, and when they entered the theatre, Ferraz and the inspector followed. "'I can stay with you an hour longer,' said the latter. "'Then I must go about my own affairs.' Ferraz nodded. He was watching Quarrelsome Harry closely, and after a time, as that personage began to look about, as if in search of some expected face, he procured an opera glass, and with its aid began to sweep the house.' Then, suddenly, he started, and after a long look at a certain point in the dress circle, he turned quickly towards the inspector. "'Do you know anyone in authority here?' he asked. "'I know the head usher over there, or rather, he knows me.' "'That will do. Just call him, won't you? Introduce me. Tell him I'm after a crook who is up to mischief here, and ask him to help me.' After a time, this was accomplished, and soon after the inspector took his leave. And now came the entr'acte, and a number of ladies left their places and went, some to the cloakroom, some to the foyer. The two men in whom Ferraz was interested went out among many others, and Ferraz followed. In the refreshment room they took places at the side, and the detective, contrary to his usual plan, passed them, and took a place midway between that occupied by the two men and a certain table further down, where a party of six were seated. 
To the waiter, who came in to serve him, Farrar said, Send me your chief waiter, and slipped a coin into his willing hand. When the chief waiter came, the two exchanged some whispered sentences, and then, as the man withdrew, our detective addressed himself to his light repast. He had been careful to keep himself unseen, so far as Harry Levy was concerned, and he had now chosen his seat behind a pillar, which hid from view while he still could, by moving slightly, look around it. It was while taking one of his frequent peeps around the pillar that Farrar saw Quarrelsome Harry tear a leaf from a small pocket book and write a few words upon it. Doing this in the most unobtrusive manner possible with a bit of paper upon his knee. Since they had exchanged those few whispered words together, Farrar's and the head waiter had not lost sight of each other, and now a slight movement of the brows brought the man to Farrar's table. Now, whispered the detective, and be sure you are not observed. The man nodded and passed on, seeming to scan with equal interest each table as he passed it. Nevertheless, he saw a note slipped into the hand of a vacant-faced young waiter, and a few words of instruction given. Then the young man turned away and began to move slowly towards the opposite side of the room. A little beyond Farrar's table he encountered the head waiter, present arbiter of his destiny. Kit, said the personage in a low tone, Slip that note you carry into my hand, and wait behind the screen yonder until I give it back to you. Quick, no nonsense, man, and mem's the word. As between a stranger with a liberal tip, and the august commander of the dining-room corpse, Kit did not hesitate, and a moment later the head-waiter dropped the note into Farrar's palm with one hand, while he placed a bottle of wine beside his plate with the other. Putting the bit of paper between the two leaves of the menu card, Faraz boldly read its pencilled message. Drive to the Café Royal. Ask to be shown to number nine. I will join you there soon. A moment later, this note was placed by Kit, besides the plate of the one for whom it was intended. The next Faraz, having tossed off his glass of light wine, arose and sauntered out of the refreshment room. But he did not return to the theatre, Instead, he took a cab and was driven to the Café Royal. Here again he sought out a person in authority, to whom he exhibited his star and card from Inspector Hirsch, and was at once shown to number eight. If questions are asked, he said, as he slipped a goodly fee into the hand of authority, remember that number eight is vacant, but is engaged for an hour later. Left to himself, Farrar's moved a chair close to the wall between himself and number nine. It was but a flimsy barrier of wood, and he nodded his approval, turned down the jet of gas until it was the merest speck, and sat himself down to wait. But not for long. Soon he heard the next door open, a sweeping, rustling sound, and the scraping of a chair. Then a bright light flashed up, the door closed, and all was still for a short time. Then, again, the door opened. There was a heavy step, low voices, and Faraz knew that he might, if he would, lay his hands upon those whom he had sought so long, and for a time it had seemed so hopelessly. Are we quite alone here, do you suppose? It was a man's voice, strong and somewhat gruff. Let us see. And he rang the bell. The man who had admitted Faraz, and who had no mind to fall out with the police, responded, and at once showed conclusively that the adjoining rooms... Numbers 8 and number 10 were quite deserted, although, he admitted, he had locked number 8 in order to secure it for a party at midnight, 
whereupon wine was ordered, and he was at once dismissed. Well, began the heavier voice again, why in the name of goodness haven't you pushed things more? I told you from the first that it was safe. There will be no crossing the big pond now. How long do you mean to dally? We can't dally now, replied the lighter voice. Didn't you see the notice in the papers? They are calling for the heirs. I don't understand it, but they tell me that unless we come forward now, the matter will be referred to some other court, and there must be a long delay. No, I must produce those papers now, and if there should be any question, any flaw, pshaw. Or if they should call us for further proof of identity, you know. Suppose someone should be found at the last moment, acquainted with her. Bosh! How foolish! Or who remembered me? I tell you, this is folly. Latham's first wife died so long ago, and at a Swedish spa. And she never had many friends. As for relatives, well, we know there are none now. Sometimes I fear the children will remember that it will all come back to them some day. I tell you, this is simply idiotic. The time has come, and everything is in train. You have all the papers, certificate of marriage, copy of will, and who is to prove that the first Mrs Latham died, and that she was the last of the Paisley line, on this side or the other? You were married abroad. You have all her family papers and her jewels. Her children call you mother, and hate me. Well, that won't cut any figures. Besides, we must have many. You and I have put our little all into this scheme. How much longer can we live decently unless you claim this estate soon? I must have many. Do you mean to see your brother starve? Hush, you are not my brother. Remember that. Only my brother-in-law. All right. How lucky that Latham's brother never came back. Now, what did you especially want to say tonight? This. I must see those lawyers tomorrow. Oh, and I, as nearest male kin, must be your escort and support you through the trying ordeal? Not at all. I am especially requested to come alone. But, but they will want corroborative testimony, and I want to beg of you not to take anything tomorrow and not to stay out the rest of the night. Much depends upon the impression we make, and if we should fail, we can't fail, or you can't. Aren't you next of kin? Faraz got up and crept noisily to the door. He had heard enough, and he had much to do, a new inquiry to open up. He knew that he should find Hobson, who had not been dismissed outside and near, and he meant to leave quarrelsome Harry to him once more. Look after him sharp, Hobson, he said, when he had found the man in the outer room. I asked the inspector to have a warrant ready in the morning. We must arrest him tomorrow. He is to be taken for conspiracy and attempted murder. That will do for a beginning. And leaving the pair in number nine to their plotting and to the watchful care of Hobson, Faraz hastened to the place. End of chapter 22